Hi, it's Marty West here, editor of Education Next and host of the EdNext podcast. We're still on summer break, but I wanted to let you know about a new podcast being launched this week by my colleague Paul Peterson. The Education Exchange with Paul Peterson will feature interviews with newsmakers and analysts on the latest developments in American education and will be available most Mondays at educationnext.org. We're posting the first episode, a discussion of the Supreme Court's Trinity Lutheran decision with Stanford law professor and former federal judge Michael McConnell here so you can see what you think. If you want to listen to future episodes, the podcast has its own SoundCloud page where you can subscribe. We hope you like it. I'm Paul Peterson, the senior editor of Education Next, and this is the inaugural podcast of what is going to be a series of podcasts released at noon every Monday on the Education Next website. Uh, Each podcast will be devoted to a discussion of a breaking education story. Today, the focus is on the recent Supreme Court decision, Trinity Lutheran Church versus Comer, director of the Missouri Department of Natural Resources. In this decision, the court held that Trinity Lutheran could not be denied a grant to help enhance their playground on the grounds that to do so is a violation of the free exercise of religion. To discuss this decision, I have with me Michael McConnell, former judge of the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals and a distinguished professor of constitutional law at Stanford University and the Hoover Institution, who has special expertise in the establishment and free exercise clauses of the First Amendment. And I must say, he is also co-editor with yours truly of a forthcoming book, uh, Scalia's Constitution, Essays in Education and the Law, which will be coming out uh, later this year. So, Michael, thank you for joining me on uh, this uh, inaugural podcast In my view, a court ruling in favor of uh, Trinity Lutheran was not unexpected, but just how significant is this decision? Is this a narrow decision about playgrounds, or is this something broader than that? Well, it's certainly broader than playgrounds. Um, What it does is clarify an area of the law which had been subject to considerable confusion. In my opinion, it doesn't really change the law, but it does greatly clarify it. And what it makes clear is that when the government chooses to subsidize private organizations, usually nonprofit uh, organizations, that it cannot discriminate against uh, those that are uh, religious in nature solely because of their religious character. Well, now they distinguish in this case... um uh, the the uh, playgrounds in Missouri from the scholarships that were given to Davy in the Lock v. Davy case, and they said that Davy, who was planning uh, to pursue theological studies, uh, w- was not eligible because that was a violation of the Establishment Clause. And here they say, well, that was based on what Davy was going to do. Here, uh, it's clearly not on what the playgrounds are going to do, it's, it's, it's the fact that they are a church playground. Do you find this uh, a convincing distinction? Well, it's a subtle point, but I think it is a valid uh, distinction. In Lockfee Davy, the point was not that there was some program out there that uh, Joshua Davy was not allowed to participate in. It's that the state did not have to subsidize 
uh, scholarships for theological training. So just because they subsidize people uh, who are, you know, going to become, you know, biologists or uh, engineers or uh, English professors doesn't mean that the state also has to uh, subsidize a theology education uh, program. And I think, I think that's quite right. Um, and the the uh, the case last week is quite different from that because here the state is subsidizing uh, uh, the rubberization of playgrounds, and this group, uh, this particular daycare center, uh, was uh, not allowed to participate in that program solely because it was connected with a church. So in one case, Lock v. Davy, the state has the uh, discretion to decide what kinds of programs it is going to uh, subsidize and doesn't have to subsidize ones that are heavily uh, religious by nature. And in the other, the state decides to subsidize a program, but it can't keep particular eligible participants out solely because of their religious status. Well, in footnote three, the court says this case involves express discrimination based on religious identity with respect to playground resurfacing. We do not address religious uses of funding or other forms of discrimination. And, and Justice Thomas took exception to this footnote. Um, why was this footnote inserted? Um, was it an effort by the Chief Justice to get a supermajority, something more than a bare five to four vote? Or um, uh, how do you interpret that footnote? Well, first of all, I do suspect that it is there in order to get to this rather impressive seven justice majority. So, you know, this was not a decision which was uh, which is narrow in the. And, and uh, in terms of the, of the splits among the justices. But what the footnote is about is when uh, government aid uh, is of a nature that it could be diverted to a religious use. Um, the play, this, this particular case was, in a sense, an easy case because it was about an aid program which was confined to one particular, you know, sort of ineffably secular matter. The rubberization of a playground is about as secular a thing as you can get. You couldn't possibly uh, divert that kind of aid into a, a religious use. Um, there is a very complicated line of cases in the Supreme Court, uh, mostly pretty old cases. My guess is that the Supreme Majority no longer supports this line, but a, a line of cases trying to distinguish between forms of aid that uh, can be diverted to religious use and those that cannot. And the court, I think this footnote, is simply saying that whatever might be the right answer to those questions, we don't have to deal with it here because this playground uh, resurfacing program uh, is so far from anything that could possibly have a religious uh, component to it that it just doesn't come up. So I don't think we should see this footnote as uh, really substantive in nature. It is simply um, confining the holding of the case to the facts of the case. Well, that's a very interesting and, and uh, useful point, uh, Michael. I'm speaking with Michael McConnell, a Stanford uh, University uh, law professor. Um, uh, but, uh, Michael, let me just uh, point, uh, bring this point out that 
there was uh, something that the court said that uh, Davy was not denied a scholarship because of who he was. He was denied a scholarship because of what he was proposing to do. And here it's a clearly a case that Trinity Lutheran is being denied a grant because of what it is. Now, Neil Gorsuch, in his concurring opinion, sort of says, well, I'm, I harbor doubts about the stability of such a line. Does a religious man say grace before dinner, or does a man begin his meal in a religious manner? Is it a religious group that built the playground, or did a group build the playground so it might be used to advance a religious mission? So do you think he's got a, a point here? I understand what he's getting at, I, and he may actually be, be right, um, but I don't think the, I, but I think the quarrel here is with how far uh, does the, did the majority need to go in order to decide this case. And the majority decided simply to decide a case where the use of the money is obviously secular. I mean, it is not because because rubberized playground services are so obviously secular, they don't have to get into harder questions. Like I want a case that I argued in the Supreme Court uh, along these lines had to do with the provision of of computers and library books to religious schools. Now, the reason that case is difficult was that the uh, a computer or a library book can be used as part of religious instruction. Now, the Supreme Court held in that case, and this was now almost 15 years ago, that the Establishment Clause allows the government to provide computers and library books even to uh, religious schools on a neutral basis. Uh, but, but it still presented, it actually divided the court three different ways and, is, uh, uh, and led to you know, a lot of, uh, of uh, confusion and line drawing. And I think the, the majority in this case is just saying, we don't have to get back into that problem. And then uh, Gorsuch, uh, Thomas, and Alito said, uh, let's get into it. Let's, let's resolve that and have a simple rule that it doesn't matter what the aid is used for. What matters is whether it's being provided on a neutral basis. Now, I personally believe that those three justices are correct about what the Establishment Clause means, but I'm not particularly upset uh, that the majority chose to hand down a somewhat narrower um, a decision in this case where it wasn't necessary to go quite that far. I think it's very helpful that they had that seven justices uh, were able to join the um, majority opinion because that is a very clear signal uh, to the legislatures and to lower courts that this is a this is a stable principle of law that's going to be with us for quite some time. It's not just one of these five fours that could change with a change of a justice, that this is a, that this is a fairly fundamental and broadly uh, consensual principle of constitutional law that, uh, that you can't exclude organizations solely because of their religious status from an otherwise neutral program. Uh, and uh, perhaps by getting this large majority, it's going to be possible to build on it uh, 
the uh, court has vacated a Colorado decision declaring school vouchers unconstitutional. That decision was based on the state's First Amendment clause, I believe. And there's also a New Mexico court decision that says uh, that providing textbooks to religious schools is unconstitutional, and the Supreme Court has now vacated that. So I'm going to first ask you, uh, Michael, what does this mean? Um, to vacate these judgments? Um, it doesn't mean a lot. Um, what it means is that the question is somehow related to the issue that the Supreme Court had just decided. And the Supreme Court typically does not invest a lot of its time in thinking through uh, how these other sort of generally related cases uh, are are going to come out under the under the new decision. Typically, if the if the uh, uh, other these sort of cases that are waiting in the wings, if they are related to the new decision, it's it's the court's very frequent practice uh, just to send them back and let the lower court figure out what the implication is of the new decision. So we shouldn't read too much into this uh, action. I would not. Now. Um Finally, I want to ask you about your essay uh, for the book that you and I have edited together, uh, Scalia's Constitution, Essays in Education and the Law, in which in your essay you say that the uh, religious clauses in the First Amendment uh, have uh, a secret meaning that, uh, that well, uh, I'll let you explain what you, what you, what you mean by that title. Well, actually, what I uh, I was making a bit of a joke. I talked about a secret history because there is a history to uh, the uh, public's support for private and religious education that the Supreme Court has never seen fit to mention, and that's I call it a secret history. It's not really secret. It's uh, it's out there in plain daylight, but. Uh, the Supreme Court has uh, not not looked at it, even though I think it's really quite relevant. And that history, let me, the, the, the high points of that history are this, um, that in the, that there was no, there really were no public schools uh, at the beginning of the Republic. Uh, the only kind of public support uh, for education came in the form of, uh, of, grants in some large cities uh, to uh, families that couldn't afford uh, the school fees. And those grants regularly went uh, to uh, private schools of all, uh, of all types. There were no public schools, remember, so it's private schools of all types, and most private schools were religious schools of various denominations. In New York, for example, in the very early parts of the 1800s, uh, there were, I believe, 14 different denominational uh, schools, you know, Lutheran and Episcopalian and Presbyterian and Jewish and so forth. Um, and the, the, there was no one believed that there was any uh, establishment clause or separation of church and state problem uh, when the state supported uh, religious education on a neutral basis. Uh, it only became controversial to do that when large numbers of Catholics arrived, and anti-Catholicism was so strong in this country in the 19th century that there were political um, 
movements of opposition uh, to doing it this way. And uh, that's not a First Amendment principle. It's, if anything, a principle we should recoil at because of its uh, connection to anti-Catholic bigotry. Um, a, a second part of the secret history has to do with the federal level, because uh, after the Civil War, uh, the federal government engaged in the first widespread program of assistance to education. This is in the Freedmen's Bureau Act. Uh, the point of this program was that the newly freed slaves of the South needed to be able to get, who had not been educated as slaves, needed uh, an opportunity to get an education. And this federal uh, program of, of uh, subsidizing education in the South uh, was directed especially to nonprofit organizations. They called them benevolent associations uh, who put on the, uh, who would conduct the schools. Well, the vast majority of these associations were religious and even denominational, run by actual uh, churches like the Presbyterian Church or the Baptist Church or, or, or uh, whatever. And again, no one suggested that there was any First Amendment problem. Uh, to the uh, aid of religiously-based uh, uh, private education. It was really not until relatively recent times uh, after World War II that the Supreme Court first began to uh, uh, think that there was any constitutional problem with neutral aid to uh, uh, to private education, including uh, religious education, and the court went through a flurry of of these decisions that were not very well, that were not very historically informed. Uh, and in the last couple of decades, the Supreme Court has retreated from most of those. And the Trinity Lutheran case is just the most recent one, recognizing not only is it legitimate. Uh, for the government to treat religiously based schools uh, equally and neutrally, but they have to do that. That there are actually constitutional constraints uh, to singling out uh, religious schools for special exclusion. Well, I think this is a really uh, important essay that you have uh, put together, uh, Michael. I think it's uh, something if. Uh, 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 that if the legal profession begins to uh, discuss this in a serious way, uh, may help to inform the court as it moves forward in trying to draw a, you know, somebody once said that the line between church and state drawn by the Supreme Court is a bit like Jefferson's uh, university wall in uh, at the University of Virginia. It's pretty... Uh, Curvilinear, it just it, it winds back uh, yeah, and forth. Yeah, I think the adjective was serpentine. <laughs> serpentine. Yeah. Mm. Uh, well said. Yes, well, uh, Chief Justice Roberts has been, uh, uh, and, and he's been on the court now for a little bit over ten years, and he has frequently uh, used uh, aspects of American religious history that had never been mentioned uh, by Supreme Court opinions before. So uh, I think we'll be seeing more of this. Well, thank you very much for joining me on our inaugural podcast. This is Paul Peterson, and I have been speaking with Michael McConnell, Stanford Professor of Constitutional Law. Thank you, Michael. Thank you.